In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies, it is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's time to redefine reality. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. The National UFO Reporting Center is dedicated to the collection and dissemination of objective UFO data. They've been in operation for nearly 50 years and uh, collected more than 150,000 UFO sighting reports. Joining us is Peter Davenport, the director of the National UFO Reporting Center. He's been the uh, director since 1994. He's also served as the director of investigations for the Washington chapter of the Mutual UFO Network. He often presents lectures on specific UFO cases, most notably the Phoenix Lights. And he's had an active interest in the UFO phenomenon from his early boyhood, experiencing his first UFO sighting over the St. Louis Municipal Airport way back in the summer of 54. And he investigated his first UFO case during the summer of 65 in Exeter, New Hampshire. 
He's also been witness to several subsequent anomalous events, possibly UFO-related, including a dramatic sighting over Baja, California in February 1990 and several nighttime sightings over Washington State during 1992. Peter Davenport, welcome back to the program. How are you? Thank you, Richard. I'm doing well, thanks. And it's so nice to be back working with you and to hear your voice. It's been a long time. And it's a great time to have you on because we are approaching the 75th anniversary of the Kenneth Arnold UFO sighting, which kind of kicked off, someone once described it as the golden age of flying saucers. And of course, that took place right there in Washington State, where you are. Any thoughts on Kenneth Arnold's sighting as we uh, approach the 75th anniversary? That was quite a sighting. And Washington State occupies a unique spot in the lore of uh, UFOs, now the voluminous lore of UFOs, of course, thanks to organizations like MUFON and the National UFO Reporting Center. But uh, the Ken Arnold sighting, you're right, it kicked it off. But I have reason to believe, and many other investigators I suspect would agree with me, that uh, it's been going on much longer than since 19, uh, 1947. Let's talk a little bit about MUFON Symposium happening in Denver, Colorado next month, July 7th to the 10th, and uh, you'll be one of the featured speakers. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I've, it's been 14 years since I've spoken at a MUFON Symposium, and I'm already preparing my talk and it should be fairly exciting to the people who attend. We're going to go back into the vast data archives at the National UFO Reporting Center. I mean, you want to go all the way back to uh, the 1930s and Alaska? Yes. Supporting my statement of a few seconds ago about how far back this phenomenon of UFOs goes, I'd like to uh, just briefly discuss a event that allegedly occurred near, very near Anchorage, just east of Anchorage. There was a, a village called Eklutna, E-K-L-U-T-N-A, Eklutna. And a gentleman contacted me in September of 2000, I think it was. He called me from Seattle and he said, Sonny, sit yourself down because I'm going to tell you a story. And he was a young boy, 18 years of age in 1936, and he was working at a Civilian Conservation Corps camp in the city of Eklutna, or the village of Eklutna. And they worked six-day weeks back in 1936. So the only night off he had was Saturday night. And he decided to hitchhike into uh, Anchorage and with a friend. They had done it several times, although earlier in the, in the season, during the summer, and as they got some distance from the camp, they became aware of an approaching light from the west. And they were relieved because they were not really appropriately dressed for the early months of a Alaska winter. So they were hoping it would be a truck. But peculiarly, it had only one light. The long story short is that this object got directly above them. It looked like a the bottom of an iron, and a, a flat iron. And they were so frightened by this object that they dove into a snowbank trying to conceal themselves from this object. 
after some short period of time, they started running back to Eklutna, and they ran all the way to get to the safety of that camp. But it raises the question, how far back do these sightings go? I don't think it all started in 1947. I, my suspicion is we have been under visitation for probably thousands or perhaps millions of years. Right. And of course, back in the 1930s, there was no National UFO Reporting Center. Uh, but the events in 47, of course, caught the attention of the uh, the media and, of course, the Chicago, Tun- Chicago Sun newspaper running that that headline about a supersonic flying saucer, and uh, it just captured the imagination uh, of the world, really, and we've never looked back. But as you say, um, many, many sightings predate uh, yeah. the, 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 the Kenneth Arnold sighting in 47. Well, we could stick with the 1930s, this one involving three young boys in Fontana, California. Yeah, and I believe it was 1937. Two boys, three young men, I guess, were returning from a local movie theater in Fontana, California. I think that's in the L.A. area. And as they were walking, no doubt, on a rural road in 1937, they were suddenly illuminated by a very bright shaft of light. And it was a shaft of light. It wasn't just random light illuminating them, they emphasized. They ran to a nearby orange grove, took cover under some of the trees, and the object that had illuminated them got directly above the top of the tree, and their impression was it tilted 90 degrees. So now its headlights are shining down on them again, and it illuminated the whole tree and the area underneath it so brightly they couldn't believe. They couldn't understand what was taking place. And I heard the reason I'm inclined to accept their description of what happened is I investigated a case, the so-called incident at Exeter case in 1965. And the three witnesses described something very similar. In other words, a disc tilting upright and turning its high beams on, if you will. Right, right. This next one, um, May 1954, St. Louis, where you had your very first sighting. This one uh, at a drive-in movie theater. Now, this wasn't your sighting, was it? Yes, it is. Ah, all right. I had a uh, a sneaky suspicion it might be. And thank you for mentioning that, Richard. As... As you speak about it, it gives me the chills to think back on what happened that night. Uh, My whole family, my two parents and my older brother and I, had to drive from Ferguson, Missouri, out to the airport so my father could do some work in his office during the evening. He uh, was the station manager for a major American airline out in St. Louis, and he had to do some work. So the four of us drove to his office and dropped him off, and the remaining three of us drove around to the southern side of the airport to watch a drive-in theater while my father was, a drive-in movie while my father was uh, working. Long story short, 
we were witness to the most, one of the most dramatic sightings I think I'm aware of. An object, the color of a red fire engine, so bright you didn't want to look at it. It was like looking at the sun. And it hovered just east of the airport for probably five seconds or so, and then suddenly accelerated at a blistering pace and covered probably 140 degrees of arc in under two seconds from a dead stop. And that is the incident in my younger years that probably explains why I'm on a talk show about UFOs with Richard Serrett. Uh, the, I have a vivid recollection of what that object looked like. And all of that was 68 years ago. So. How could it not change the trajectory of your life? What about for your siblings? My older brother, now a retired physician, remembers it somewhat well, but not as clearly as I do. And he and I have discussed it. And we, my opinion is he didn't see it as well as I did because he was in the back of a 1953 Studebaker, our family car at the time, and he didn't have a good eyeball on it. He couldn't see it because he was probably slouched back in the seat and he was in the middle of the car, close to the center line of the car. I was in the front passenger seat, however, and uh, was looking out the window. The window was probably mere inches from my nose if it was closed at all. So it was a, it was a very dramatic event. And I remember when we went around to the north side of the airport and picked up my father, my parents talked about this incident all the way home. And they were frightened by it. I could sense that they were somewhat alarmed by what they had just seen earlier, earlier that evening. But the interesting thing is that many of the people in the theater had gotten out of their cars and were walking towards this object. So it had been there some while before I had become aware of it. But it was quite a sighting. And I am very sympathetic when people call our hotline, UFO hotline, and want to tell me all about their sighting. But often they say the appearance of the object remains engraved indelibly on their brain. I know what they're talking about when they say that. Might be a good time to um, explain how people can report a sighting to the uh, National UFO Reporting Center. Yes, thank you. Uh, we have a telephone hotline that has been in continuous operation since October of 1974. And the telephone number is area code 206 Seven two two three thousand two zero six seven two two three thousand, and uh, it, we don't answer it twenty four hours a day, of course, but we try to answer at least during two working shifts, and invariably, most people who call the hotline 
want to talk and talk and talk about their sighting. If we had unlimited time, we'd be happy to accommodate them and listen. But what we try to get people to do is not talk about their sighting, but rather write about it in order to capture the information. So if somebody calls the hotline, they'll probably be talking to me, and I will probably listen to their story for a minute or two, and then encourage them to go to our online report form at ufocenter.com and fill out the report form. Looks like a blank job application, Richard. <laughs> ufocenter.com, ufocenter.com. We colonies spell center strangely. We spell it U-F-O-C-E-N-T-E-R. That's right. E-R, not R-E, like we Canucks do. Just sticking with the, uh, the, the your sighting in St. Louis and that drive-in movie theater, and it just reminded me of uh, Preston Dennett, uh, who I've, I've spoken to many times, and he's such a prolific writer. But he, there are so many cases of UFO sightings uh, over drive-in theaters. It was enough for him to fill an entire volume, an entire book dedicated just yeah. to UFO sightings at drive-in theaters. What do you think it is about drive-in theaters? Well, it's people are out at night by definition. They're looking out their windows, and, uh, so they're probably in a position to be observant, to be in a position where if there is a UFO present in the nighttime sky, they will probably be aware of it. But I remember very distinctly my sighting how the people in the theater had gotten out of their cars and they were all walking in the same direction towards the object. It was almost as if they were somewhat mesmerized by it. But another interesting point I'd like to make, Richard, is that how many people would be in a drive-in theater on a weekday night? Probably many hundreds, perhaps a thousand or more. And if anybody saw that object in 1954, I assert that they would almost certainly recall the incident. But there's been only one report submitted for the incident, and that is mine. So it makes me believe that we're getting only very, very few reports captured. All of ufology is getting very few reports relative to the number that we could be capturing if uh, witnesses were more willing to submit reports. That would be an interest, interesting study. So for example, I know, uh, just as an analogy, we have the vaccine adverse events reporting uh, system and Harvard University, I think it was actually a study funded by the CDC or the, uh, yeah, the CDC. They wanted to know, you know, what percentage of people are reporting adverse events and by some uh, um, interpretations, only about 1% of all vac adverse events for vaccines are reported. So it would be interesting to see a similar study done uh, in terms of uh, UFO sightings and what percentage you have over 150,000 um, reports on uh, the ufocenter.com. It'd be interesting to see what, what percentage of people actually are reporting. Yeah. 
You may be shocked to hear my estimate of the, how many people report UFO sightings. I estimate, and it's only a guess, but it's based on a lot of experience, that out of somewhere between 10,000 and 20,000 sightings by people of what they think was a definitely a UFO, all of ufology has captured only one of those 10,000 to 20,000 reports. It underscores how much work we have left to to do in ufology to capture those reports. And if you'd allow me, I'd like to encourage any of our listeners who had past sighting reports a year, a decade, or even eight or nine decades ago to record the information so and submit it to our center using our online report form. I can't tell you how many people have told me about family members who had sightings but who have passed on without recording them. And once that information goes away, it's lost for good, of course. Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with MS-13 in El Salvador? How the Russian mafia fought battles all over Brooklyn in the 1990s? Or what about that time I got lost in the Burmese jungle hunting the world's biggest meth lab? Or why the Japanese Yakuza have all those crazy dragon tattoos? I'm Sean Williams. And I'm Danny Gold. And we're the hosts of the Underworld Podcast. We're journalists that have traveled all over, reporting on dangerous people and places. And every week, we'll be bringing you a new story about organized crime from all over the world. We know this stuff because we've been there. We've seen it. And we've got the near misses and embarrassing tales to go with it. We'll mix in reporting with our own experiences in the field. And we'll throw in some bad jokes while we're at it. The Underworld Podcast explores the criminal underworlds that affect all of our lives, whether we know it or not. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered what it's like to be buried in an avalanche? Weird foreign feeling of despair. Or how it feels to crash a skydive? I remember hearing a thud, feeling my body hit the ground. Or how you would react if you were being attacked by an alligator? At the end of my leg is this huge alligator head on my leg. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a victim of an attack. Dragging me into the bathroom and saying, I'm going to kill you, now you're going to die. You'll hear from a man who discovered a baby. How could this be? How could there be a baby on the ground? And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Clanky County 911, there's a man at my back door. He's trying to get in. What Was That Like is a podcast about real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at What Was That Like. Overwhelmed by investing? If you're anything like us, the hardest part is getting started. That's why we created the Investing for Beginners podcast. Our goal is to help simplify money so it can work for you. We invite guests to demystify investing. At least try to be setting aside like the minimum 10% into the 401k. We'll teach you the basics of the market. Yeah, I think compound interest should be at the start of any discussion about investing and... We've had investment professionals who teach in a simple way. A valuation-driven bear market. You know, we, we haven't really seen yet, and I think everyone's thinking about it, but we haven't really seen yet. Our Q&A episodes feature questions from listeners just like you. So what do you think about the situation with ETBI, which is Activision? I'm Dave Ahern. And I'm Andrew Sather. 
and we hope you join us on the Investing for Beginners podcast. On the Investing for Beginners podcast. Every town has a dark side. This is Andrew Fitzgerald from the Every Town podcast, where every single week we dive into insane and mysterious true crime stories, most of which you've never heard of. Stories like the bizarre disappearance of Tyler Davis in Columbus, Ohio, a 29-year-old father trying to find his way back to his hotel when he disappeared and was never heard from again, and Elizabeth Shelf from Lugoff, South Carolina, who was abducted from her driveway by a madman and taken to his underground bunker in the woods. And we give you all the details you're interested in hearing about without any fluff or fillers, because ain't nobody got time for that. Cover everything from psychopaths to poltergeists. So go check out the Every Town podcast because every town, no matter how nice it may seem, has a dark side. We've seen so many people making ridiculous money from crypto. But did you know it's easy for you to do the same? The Copy My Crypto membership site shows you the coins that the YouTuber James McMahon personally holds and allows you to copy him. You don't need to know a thing about crypto or how to invest as you simply do what he does. Let me tell you more about James. He runs the Crypto with James YouTube channel. Since March 2020, he's told his viewers to buy 26 crypto coins. Had you put in $100 into each one, it would now be worth over $53,000. So if you'd like to join the 1,300 members who copy James, then stop what you're doing and head over to copymycrypto.com forward slash dollar. You'll not only find proof of everything I've said, but listeners get full access for just $1. You can't find this offer anywhere else, but act fast because the offer ends soon. That's copymycrypto.com forward slash dollar. Don't take this offer lightly. He's the real deal. Go visit the site now. The truth will set you free. 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 But first, it will really tick you off. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Another phenomenon that I have encountered, I've I've not seen um, a UFO, but I've talked to many people who have. And um, there is kind of this, I don't know how common it is, but you'll have two people in a car, let's say, who see the same thing and yet only they, they won't talk about it afterwards together. Yes. What is that all yeah. about? Isn't that interesting? And I could probably sift through 150,000 of our reports and find hundreds or thousands of reports exactly as you described, Richard. Uh, it's almost as if a, a notion has been implanted in their brains not to talk about it, or a screen memory. I've been mystified by that too. I have no idea what causes that or what the purpose of it might be. All right. Uh, let's certainly taking place. Yes, yes. Uh, let's go dip back into the uh, the vast archives of UFO sightings at the uh, ufocenter.com. And uh, let's see. Well, let's talk about your other sighting. Uh, This was your kind of your first investigation, I guess, back in uh, September of 1965 in Exeter, New Hampshire. Yes. That was a very interesting sighting. And it involved multiple people all of who seem to agree on the details of the sighting 
at one point, to give our listeners today some idea of the quality of the witnesses, um, two Exeter police officers were standing on a, the edge of a secondary road in, actually it was Kensington, New Hampshire, which is adjacent to Exeter, watching a disc-shaped craft flip moving almost faster than the eye could follow it, moving, flitting around a large 40-acre field. And both of them were rock-solid citizens. One of them had served in Korea with the U.S. Air Force, so he was probably an excellent observer. And he said he's never witnessed such a craft in all his life. And it gave rise to a book. John G. Fuller, a Boston columnist, apparently was investigating the case when I was. I graduated from high school in 1965, in June of that year. And I was just about to go off to college when this incident occurred. And the witnesses were adamant uh, in discussing what they had seen, and it gave rise to two newspaper articles that I wrote. And it was a very dramatic sighting. Uh, in the time that remains, uh, Peter, I wanted to uh, move down towards the bottom of this uh, list from this uh, uh, sample that you've provided me from the uh, the archives and it's uh, Taos, New Mexico in uh, fairly recent September of 2019 and the reason it caught my eye is it, it's not uh, you know a typical lights in the sky type of sighting these two elk hunters encountered an actual being or, or two strange beings yes and People can see those articles on our website. I don't, we've changed the website a bit recently, so I can't guide them to it precisely. But if they hunt around, they will see that on the ufocenter.com website. Two hunters were out near Taos, New Mexico. And I think this was only three or perhaps four years ago. And, or less actually. And they saw a building down in the forest. They were scanning the forest for herds of elk. And they saw a building that they couldn't understand why it was there or what it was. Saw it from a distance with their binoculars. The next day they decided to go and investigate. And it was gone the second day. So they may have been looking at a craft that had set down in the forest. And one they split up after they couldn't find the building. And one of the hunters stumbled upon, he saw two what he perceived to be alien creatures, distinctly alien creatures standing in the forest. Beyond that, I want to read the article in detail before I speak anymore, but 
the two elk hunters I'm led to believe were interviewed by a radio station and they were very convincing. Yeah, they describe these creatures as uh, having bulbous heads. Yes, that's right. I remember that now as you say it. But I, it leads me to conclude, Richard, that our planet is being routinely visited by alien creatures who have elevated command of technology vastly beyond anything we have. And this is just yet another example of what must be a large number of visitations. I just wanted to uh, point out if uh, people want to pursue some of these uh, incidents or these sightings for themselves and they go to the uh, ufocenter.com, ufocenter.com, and uh, there is uh, in the menu, there's a data bank. And if you click on data bank, you can index it by the event date, uh, by state, by the shape of the UFO, or by the date posted. So it's all very well organized, ufocenter.com. And uh, again, uh, so Peter, what is the uh, the, the uh, subject you'll be discussing at uh, the MUFON Symposium in Denver, July 7th to the 10th? Well, it's going to be a little bit of a surprise, but uh, I'm going to be talking about disclosure. And people use that term indiscriminately, I observe, in the UFO field. I'm going to be presenting my own kind of disclosure uh, using what's known as passive radar. I'll present uh, several cases, interesting cases, for which we have good photographic evidence. And then I'll be talking about uh, these orange lights, spheres, that people are reporting by the bushel hole. We have no idea what they are. And one question I ask is, could they be related to the so-called Foo Fighter phenomenon? phenomenon that occurred in the 1940s. Balls of light seen by military pilots that accompanied uh, bombers and fighters both during the Second World War. Then I'll talk about, uh, plan to talk about using what's known as passive radar, Richard, the reflections of commercial radio and television signals off UFOs and listening for that reflected signal. And then I may close, and I'm giving away my talk as I speak, I recognize, but I'm pleased to share it. You're terribly kind to ask. Uh, then I'm going to close off my talk with talking about what it's like to run a hotline, a UFO hotline. There's some interesting things I've observed about people in general and about Americans and Canadians in particular. So that's my plan. All right. And again, that is the uh, 2022 MUFON International Symposium, UFOs in the Spotlight. This is the 52nd annual International MUFON Symposium, uh, featuring, of course, Peter Davenport, director of 
The National UFO Reporting Center, other outstanding historians, filmmakers, researchers, journalists, witnesses. And again, July 7th to the 10th at the Sheraton Downtown Hotel, Denver, Colorado. And uh, you can contact, uh, I guess the best is just to um, email, it's easier to remember, symposium at MUFON.com. Symposium at MUFON.com. Dot com. Peter, great catching up with you. We won't leave it so long next time. And uh, thank you so much for this. Thanks for the invitation, Richard. It's been great working with you. Peter Davenport, the National UFO Reporting Center, ufocenter.com. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Subscribe at strangeplanetpodcast.com.